Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. Back in uh, back in the early '80s, I was a college kid at Stockton State in Pomona, New Jersey, and in the summers we would go to the Jersey Shore. And and then a movie came out called Eddie and the Cruisers, and we all loved it. And we loved it because it took place in the Jersey Shore. In fact, one of the scenes took place at a bar called Tony Mart in Summer uh, Summers Point, New Jersey, which I actually snuck into when I was underage. But that album came out, and, and, the, and the movie came out, and the soundtrack, the soundtrack was just amazing. And I loved it then, and I love it now. In fact, a few weeks ago, uh, Joanne was in the room watching a, a Hallmark movie, and I was in the living room, and I grabbed my adult beverage of choice, and I put on the soundtrack, and I just loved it. And when I hear on the dark side, when I hear that opening piano, that it's a riff, I guess you call it. Boy, that's the guy. Boy, that's a, if it's a piano, if it's a riff, because you think of a guitar. But it just, it still gets me, and it just puts me in a good mood. And my guest today is responsible. He's responsible for that soundtrack, and my guest is John Cafferty. How you doing, John? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm good. Thanks so much for inviting me. Appreciate it. Well, I'm, I, I love it because I'm looking at you. You got the gold records, and uh, it's so funny. You know, I think about that soundtrack, and I think about that time in my life, and it was just, I had no worries, but we would hear that, and, and it was such good music, and I am sure you know this, but you like... Like, every kid and every college guy in New Jersey loved you guys. <laughs> well, good to know. Good to know. Hopefully, hopefully a few of the girls like this, too. Oh, <laughs> believe me, they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so so how did you get into music? You know, because you've, you've been playing for a long time. We're going to talk about your greatest hits albums coming out. But but were you a kid who who excelled at music? Or how did you get into this this art? Well, uh, you know, I, I, uh, when I was a kid, I wasn't really uh, a musician. Um, you know, I, I didn't really take lessons or anything like that. Um, I can remember when I was about, you know, eight or nine years old, down at the beach, and, uh, you know, I had, uh, had a baseball bat over my shoulder with a glove on the handle, you know, going down to the ball field, and I walked by my cousin's house, and uh, he had one of them, uh, you know, suitcase uh, record players from Sears that, you know, and he was sitting out on his porch, and he was playing, he had a stack of 45s, and I was walking by, and he played, uh, you know, Dwayne Eddy Rebel Rouser, and the sound of the saxophone and the guitar just somehow just stopped me in my tracks. I, I didn't. You know, the beat, the just the whole feel of it, just, uh, you know, and I didn't know why. I just reacted to it, and I just, uh, you know, I, I liked the sound of the guitar. And, uh, you know, so I started to get interested in playing the guitar, and then, of course, you know, uh, my cousin Stevie and, and I went down to see, uh, uh, you know, the Beatles in Hard Day's Night, you know, at the local theater. And uh, it was just something about uh, those guys that just made it look like so much fun. And, you know, so we started a band. We were like 13 years old. And we were off to the races after that. You know, 71, is, and so is he, and we're still in bands. And we can still rock the house. Now, now, how did you guys start getting gigs? I mean, you know, I, I know talk to a lot of people say we started when we were 13. But when you're 13, you know, you may play a dance, but you're not, you're not playing bars, you know. But how did you guys, when did you guys start getting gigs? I mean, was it was there like school dances, or, or what were some of your first gigs like? 
Yeah, I mean, school dances. I, I can remember playing, uh, I think I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, I went to a Catholic boys' school, and I remember I had a little band together. And, uh, you know, we just, you know, knew the songs of the day, you know, the songs that were on the radio, a lot of the, you know, the, the uh, British invasion stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the, some of the, you know, and then Beach Boys stuff and, and you know, um, Mitch riding the Detroit wheels and, and that kind of thing. But, uh, but I remember, remember I was on stage and uh, we did uh, Louie Louie by the Kingsman. And Brother Timothy came out on stage and grabbed me by the ear and pulled me right off the stage. <laughs> he made the band stop because, uh, you know, I guess, you know, they, he heard that it, it had, like, uh, bad lyrics to it. You know, <laughs> just, so one of my, my fondest uh, memories about being in a band, you know, getting yanked off by uh, Brother Timothy, that son of a gun. But, uh, yeah. So, 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 okay, so when do you start getting work at bars because i know you guys had a, a busy schedule and you know it's so weird because i'm i'm 58 and when i was in college all the bars at the jersey shore had music you know in wildwood you had the penalty box and art stocks playpen there's all these places but i know you guys played a lot of bars in the beginning when did you start hitting the bars and how did you get your following um god i you know, in high school, I mean, you know, I played a blues band, so it wasn't uh, wasn't a whole lot of work for you know seventeen year olds playing blues, but but you know that that's what we did. You know, we just uh, you know I liked all those English bands that we, we were playing. You know, like the Stones and the Animals and the Yardbirds and all that stuff. And you know, I, I liked what they played, and I was wondering where that music came from, and uh, you know. It, it came from here. It came from Chicago. A lot of it, you know, Money Waters, Holland Wolf, Bo Diddley, all that stuff. And uh, so, me and my buddies that were going to school, we we uh, started, uh, you know, learning those kinds of songs, and and uh, and which was great because we learned how to improvise and all of that. But you know, one when I started working, I was probably in college, uh, you know, freshman, maybe freshman year. You know, uh, Kenny Joe Silva was in a, a cover band uh, called The Love and Kind. Kenny was our original drummer. And uh, he said that the uh, lead singer was leaving and asked me if I'd be interested in it. So I said, well, I'm going to be a lifeguard, you know, for the summer. And he said, well, and he told me how much money he was making on the weekend. And I said, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, not that it was a lot of money, but compared to being a lifeguard, you know, uh, it was so so I joined up with his band and uh, you know I stayed for a little bit and I didn't really like all the music that we were playing and I decided that if I was going to be on stage I wanted to do something that you know really uh, made my foot tap and made me you know I mean if, if uh, you got to believe in it because if you don't believe in it you have no right to ask anybody else to so uh, I wanted to play stuff that had meaning to me, and and so we quit that band and we started what eventually became the Beaver Brown Band. Now, how did you start writing songs? Because you know, it's the old scenario. Back in the day, 
everyone was if you you had to play covers. I mean, if you went to the shore bar, you had to play covers, and you know people would sneak in original, and you know, I mean, you know how it is. But when did you start writing songs, and how was what was your plan to like get them into your set? Well, uh, you know, I mean, just like everyone else, I mean, you know, you play in the bars, the bar rooms want you to play songs that people know. So they want you to play the top 40, which we didn't really do. Um, but what we did was we played early rock and roll R&B songs and um, songs that uh, that we loved, number one, had to be the criteria. Songs that we could learn something from, uh, number two. And, and third, you know, had to have a certain, uh, you know, certain... Uh, you know, energy to them. So whether people knew the songs or not, maybe they would recognize the feel of the songs. You know, they they they've just felt familiar to people. So we we did we did a lot of that stuff. And uh, you know, and then when I started writing songs, I was writing songs that were colored by the influences of those songs. You know, uh, early R and B, early rock and roll. You know, Motown, all that stuff. You know, just sort of just putting the different influences in there. And uh, so the, the songs felt like they, they fit in with, with everything else that we were doing. And, and eventually we started getting known for that. Now, you you released, I believe, in 1980, your own what, single or songs. I mean, how did you start getting recognized in the business? Well, it was, we had a 45, uh, you know, for those for those of you at home, it's like the small wreckage with the big hole in the middle. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, I remember my my son wanted a a, a phonograph, but he wanted a turntable for Christmas a few years ago. He was a lot younger, and uh, you know, so we got him one and put on a vinyl record. And he looked at it. and He said, "I got a question." I said, "What?" He said, suppose you want to play, like, the third song on the record. Like, what do you do? I said, well, you got to pick up the needle and put it over onto the third song. Don't, like, don't, give him really? a 40, don't give him a 45. He won't, he won't really? know how to put it on the uh, turntable. Yeah. It's like the technology is, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, come a, it's come a long ways. He said, what's that sound? Like, all that, like, like crackling and stuff. I see that's what that's what records sound like, especially the records of a musician. You know, it, it's like I mean, we if you ever buy a uh, vinyl, don't get them from don't buy used records from a musician. Back in the day, we had to pick up the needle and put it down and pick it up, put it down, pick it to try to learn the words, and then to try to learn the chords and the and the guitar licks and stuff. So our records are all uh, you know they're all they're all banged up. So you have the forty-five. You put out the forty-five, and people are buying it. So you're you're getting you're getting a nice following now. Well, I mean, you know, we're trying to get a record deal. Um, you know, and uh, you know, we we had gone about it in, in many different ways, and and uh, um, record companies at the moment um, didn't really think what we were doing was was uh, commercial, so to speak. They didn't. You know, basically, they think we could sell records, um, and they didn't think our songs were radio friendly. So, we went into the studio. I had a couple of songs. One was 
a song called Tender Years, another one called Wild Summer Nights, um, Wild Summer Nights being the A-side, and we, you know, we printed up, uh, you know, printed up a few thousand copies, and, and uh, you know, we sold them at gigs, and we sent them out to radio stations, and, and um, you know, we started getting a lot of airplay, you know, in, first in Rhode Island, then Boston, Connecticut, um, then, you know, Philly, Washington, D.C., Cleveland, and, you know, and then the big one was New York City. I mean, NEW started playing it, and, um, you know, it. Uh, we got a lot of uh, lot of recognition from that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how that came about. So did you get a record deal from that, or did you, or what came from that? Well, we did a we did a live radio broadcast on NEW from the bottom line, uh, which at the time was uh, is a pretty prestigious thing. That that uh, usually um, that kind of opportunity didn't go to an unsigned band, um, and you know it, you know it, it, which ended up becoming our first record in hindsight because it got taped and retaped and, and you know you know, sent around the internet, like, you know, from cassette to cassette back in the day, but uh, now it's all over the internet. But uh, that is essentially became our first record. Um, but the the simple answer is no, we didn't get a record deal. How, how much did that piss you off? I mean, I mean, the bottom line is prestigious. You know, we used to hear it on like MMR, they would play live from the bottom line. You hear these concerts, you go, oh, you know, and Warren Zevon with Ed Shock, and, you know, all these things. How, <laughs> how, often, how much did that piss you off? Because you're, you're, you're getting airplay. Okay? You're on the radio. Okay, now, you, when, now me growing up not being in the music industry, when I hear someone on the radio, I think they have an album. You guys are doing that. I mean, was it frustrating? Were you getting pissed off? I mean, how did you guys keep it together? Because you should have had a damn record deal. Well, uh, shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know. Um, uh, and by the way, Ed Shockey was the guy who played our, our, our record. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great guy. I, I liked him, you know. He, he, uh, he was really good to us, you know. But um, we... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, we just, um, we were lifers. We knew that from the beginning. I mean, we weren't in it for the the short term. We were musicians for life. I mean, we were just, it's what we did. I mean, we were craftsmen. We were, it was our job. It's, it's how we related to ourselves and how we related to each other and to other people. Um, that's just what we did. So, you know, we had been together, you know, maybe about, um, you know, maybe like seven or eight years at that point. Um, we knew that uh, we were good at it because, you know, uh, we played night after night, six, seven nights a week, five, six sets a night. I mean, we were pretty good at it. And, uh, you know, we said, well, I mean, who's who's going to buy records if not these people in the front row that are like, you know, dancing and smiling and, you know, coming back night after night. So, uh, you know, we, we uh, you know, we were frustrated on one level, but uh, not deterred on another level. We were just, you know, we we're going to keep going no matter what. 
you know, we just, you know, whether we got to make records or we didn't, we were just going to keep going. So that's what we did. Now, how did Eddie and the Cruisers come about? Because, you know, that, that shit, that blew up. I mean, that's, you know, you guys blew up. But how did that, I mean, how does a, a movie get made with a band that didn't have a record? I mean, tell me the story about how this happened. Because, I, as I told you, I love that soundtrack and I love that movie. But how did you get involved with Eddie and the Cruisers? Well, uh, you know, a couple of years after that, um, you know, that, that uh, I think the Wild Summer Nights and Tender Years and all that stuff was, was uh, I think it was right around 79, 80. So um, after that, you know, we was, you know, we were still in pursuit of getting a record deal. I was making a name for ourselves and making new friends. So we were, uh, you know, we played three nights a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, in local bars in Rhode Island, north, south, east, west. And, uh, you know, on weekends we would go out and play for, uh, you know, pizza and beer and parking money. You know, we would play wherever, you know, people would have us. And, uh, you know, we made our, our week's pay in the in Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then we went out on the weekends and just saw, saw what we could do. So we played in Greenwich Village at the, at the Bitter End. We were playing there one night, and a uh, guy was walking down the street, as legend has it. Um, and the uh, guy whose name was Kenny Vance, he was uh, in a band called Jay and the Americans back in the 60s. Uh, legendary band from Brooklyn and uh, he was walking down the street and uh, he, he heard the, the sound of the band you know the saxophone and the piano and and the echo on the voice and the big beat and, you know it sounded like a ruckus in there and he said that sounds pretty good so he came in and checked us out and uh, never knew he was there never met him um, and uh couple of years later, um, yeah, maybe about a year later, you know, got a, he got a, a script for a movie called uh, Eddie and the Cruisers and said to the director, Marty Davidson, I think I know the band who's got this music. I saw him playing in the village and, uh, you know, they might, they might be it. They even got the sax player, you know, and uh, so, you know, he approached us to see if we'd be interested and that. You know, he called us up, and of course, the first thing I said was no. Why? <laughs> I didn't do that. Why not? Because I, I felt that uh, I felt that our band was good enough, um, without strings attached. Um, that our music was good, that our band was good, and I felt that eventually we would get signed and, and break through. Um, but. You know, we had been at it for a while, and, and this looked like an opportunity that if we did a good job on it, maybe somebody would be interested in signing the band, um, you know, to a record deal, which is eventually in a roundabout way, that's what happened. So what was the process? Did they come to you and say, okay, John, write these songs, here's a scene? I mean, how did you come up with... Like on the dark side, I want to know how you came up with that song because I love that song. I mean, did, when you when you wrote that, did you sit there and, and did you think the piano right in the beginning? The you know, I mean, I can't do any musical extent effects. I, I if I do the worst piano ever, but I mean, when how did you how did you write that song? What was your process in writing that song? Did it start with piano or did you start with the words? How did you write it? Well, 
Uh, they gave me a movie script, um, and uh, there was a song called On the Dark Side that was in it, and um, the description of the song was, uh, it was poetic in nature, lyrically, um, that it, um, it started out with a classical piano piece, and then went into a classic uh, rock guitar riff and that's you know that's that's what we had to go by so uh kenny vance who who uh very intuitive he said uh you know you had a song that had a piano thing you know maybe something like that you know we had this song called donald and Colvett that had like this sort of piano intro he said you know maybe some variation of that and so you know sat down and came up with a little piano thing and, and um and I was working on a song that, that had that sort of like, uh, you know, uh, guitar riff in it. And, uh, you know, I used that. And, um, but it had to be called On the Dark Side. So I, I, you know, I had no idea what that was supposed to be. And I said, can it be something else? And they said, no, because we've already shot a couple of scenes. And, you know, because they brought us in very late in the process. I mean, they were already started. And, uh, you know, they're talking about On the Dark Side as being this big hit record. I said, oh, and it has to be a hit record as well. <laughs> and and uh, so, you know, I just uh, I just sat down and I wrote, um, I, I wrote, I described a scene that was in, in, in the movie or it was in the script where the, the, the girl singer in the band who's going out with the lead singer, um, she comes walking in to the bar and, and um, Tom Berenger, who's the piano player, you know, he's got the hots for her and, you know, and he looks at her coming in, you know, so I just sort of describe what he might be feeling, you know, the frustration of it, you know, um, you know, from out of the shadows, she walks like a dream. She makes me feel crazy, makes me feel so mean. Nothing's going to save you from a love that's blind. When you slip to the dark side, you cross that line, you know. And that was it. And and that's all there was to it. And up until the point where we had to go in, and I made the demo, and it just, uh, you know. And then when I wanted to record the record, Southside Johnny was with us. And, and I said to John, I said, uh, nothing, nothing, but I don't have a second verse. All I got is this one verse. <laughs> And he said, well, you know, s s you know, sing it twice. I said, can I do that? He goes, yeah, you know, it's a movie, you know. And and so, I, you know, so I sang it once over the slow part and once over the fast part. And, you know, we never thought we were making a record. We thought we were making, you know, music for a movie, which they would probably only use like a minute of or, you know, a clip from each song. Um but, you know, I mean, it, it eventually became like the biggest song we ever had. Not the best song I ever wrote, but um, it, the most popular, that's for sure. Now, how did you get Tender Years in, in, the, in the movie? Because that was on the flip side of your 45. Uh, Tender Years might be the most best song that I ever wrote. Uh, we, we, had that, um, we had that beforehand. But how'd yeah. you get that in the movie? Did you say you got to put this in the movie, or or how did that happen? Yeah, they want you know they wanted that song in the movie, 
and they wanted Wild Summer Nights. They wanted both the the songs that were from the single. But Tendy Years pretty uh, had a lot of longevity, and, and uh, you know it's been a big part of our show and our band for you know decades. But um, that's a good one. And um, I remember you know years ago, um, you know before any of this stuff happened, I remember getting a call from um, you know Bruce Springsteen, and he was, he said you know this is a good one, this is a real good one, this is a keeper. You know, because and it would and it had like it had like the lyrics from uh, you know it sounded like uh, like one of those Brill Building songs from the from the sixties, like a Drifter song, like a Carol King, like up on the roof kind of song. You know, Oops, sorry, but um, uh, yeah, and they so they wanted that song in the movie, which I was very reluctant to you know to do that, but. Because I wanted those for I wanted those songs for my record, you know, for my first record. And uh, but you know, that was the compromise that I had to make was to put those songs in. Yeah, I know you said it sounded like a drifter song or stuff like that, but why do you feel that it's your best song? I mean, is there a certain reason that you sit there because you said you feel like that's the best song you've written? Why do you feel that way? Uh, you know, simple melodic universal theme. It's it's um. You know, and I, 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 you know, tunes on the sax. I mean, he, you know, he just he blows magic into it every night. And, you know, I think the simplicity of it and uh, just, the, the, you know, the sound of it. We uh, we made a single. Um, that I always liked the sound of the single better than I liked the, what went into the movie soundtrack. But um, um, it, it uh, I don't know, you know. Why is the Why is Stand by Me a great song? I mean, I don't know. It just it just is. It's just like just simple, beautiful. You know, Benny King singing the, those lyrics and uh, you know the production, Lieber and Stoller. I mean, it's all great. And uh, it it just is just a simple simple song that uh, just just retains its quality time after time. So now that the album becomes popular. You got to do videos, you know, which everyone remembers. People, there used to be videos, and we would watch them all day on MTV. That's all we would do. But what was it like for you guys? All of a sudden, you've been busting your ass. You know you're good. You know you're tight because you've been playing together. But now, all of a sudden, you're getting this accolades. Were, were you loving it? I mean, well, how did your life change? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, that record uh, came and went. You know, we got signed to a deal, started work on an album called Tough All Over, uh, because I lost uh, 10 years in, in uh, Wild Summer Nights, which probably would have been cornerstones of our first record. Uh, I started to rethink what my first record was going to be, and I started writing different types of songs, a little shorter, uh, a little more to the point, a little more uh, with, the, with the hooks for the radio. And um, th that became the Tough All Over album. Um, but as we were making that record, uh, you know, they, they played the movie on cable television, which was sort of a novelty at that point, if you can believe that. I mean, you know, people were just getting signed up and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of content out there. And they put the movie 
on during the summer all the kids were home you know they they flipping around the channels all of a sudden they see like uh you know uh a 57 chevy and a good looking guy with a guitar and singing these cool songs and said you know and they watched it like 25 times and it and by doing so it was like they were listening to an album because they they were not only hearing what became our hit record, which is Dark Side, but they were hearing all the rest of the songs that were in the film as well. And uh, consequently started buying the album, the soundtrack record. And the record sold a million copies in a month. In a month. I mean, it was just like, so we were playing at clubs, you know, and all of a sudden there were more people outside the club trying to get in than were actually in there. And, uh, you know, I mean, within a month, it's like, uh, you know, we're number one on MTV. I don't know what MTV is because I don't have cable yet myself. And uh, but we got to go on American Bandstand with the clock. You know, what was that like? What is that like for someone who, you know, we grew up watching TV and I used to do stand up comedy. So, you know, when my friends would go on Letterman or Carson, it was a, it was a big thing. But, you know, you, you grew up listening to music. What is it like? to go on America Pantstand because everybody watched that show. I think everybody back then knew Dick Clark was. What is that like for for an artist when you finally sit there and go, holy crap, I'm, I'm going to be on I'm going to be on American Bandstand. What was the experience? Well, I mean, you know, we, we the whole experience, you know, we, we started selling records and it sold a million records in a month and we all looked at each other and went, uh, well, I got a funny feeling that we're not any more talented this month than we were last month, you know, and that record isn't really any better than it was last year. So it, it's, uh, this probably has nothing to do with us. So we, uh, we said this, this is, uh, this is the roller coaster ride. Let's just get on and go for the ride and see what happens. So to, to, to be on a show like, uh, American Bandstand with Dick Clark. I mean, it was like, uh, it was so fun. And, you know, he really liked us. He liked our story. He liked the fact that we had been around and, and that, uh, you know, this was a, a very special moment for us and that we had worked hard for it. And when, and we were very appreciative of, of all these opportunities that were coming our way. And, um, you know, so he liked us, and and so when we, we were on the show, he was so good to us, and, and you know, he's very personable, and, I, you know, he might have been that way with everybody, but I know that he was with the, like that with us, and, uh, you know, we were just thrilled to be on it, and it's, and it's like they shot that show in real time. I mean, it was on, it was filmed, but it was filmed in real time, so when they come up to you in the dressing room and say, okay, two minutes, I mean, it's two minutes. And you go up and you're standing there and everybody's dancing out on the floor. And they go, okay, the, you know, 30-second commercial break. And they start, like, rolling amplifiers and drums and everything, you know. And the kids are scrambling to get from the dance floor to the peanut gallery up in the stands. And, and you know, and, like, oh, you know, they go five, four, three. And you stand behind a microphone and you see a red light go on. And all of a sudden, there's Dick across the room sitting in the crowd going, all right, and he introduces you, and they play the beginning of Dark Side, and you're lip-syncing, you know? You're not singing it live, so you're singing along with the record. And as soon as the record is over, um, you know, you turn around, and there he is. He's right on your shoulder, and he's got the microphone, and, you know, 
in asking you questions and I'm looking at him and my eyes won't focus because he's so close to me for the television, right? And I'm saying to myself, well, this big clock and he's like, he's too close to me. I can't see him. And, you know, he starts asking his questions and, and you know, went around to the band and, he's, you know, to get everybody to say a little something and, you know, it, I mean, we just thought it was just so fun. I mean, it really was great. It was now, terrific. Now, how did, as the album, you know, Eddie and the Cruz is just taking off, and it's funny because we had a cable in the Philadelphia area called Prism, and that's where I saw it. It was, it, it was one of these paid stations my parents got. It was before HBO, and they had that movie, and we, okay. would, we would watch it. But So the movie takes off, the album takes off, but you're you had just started working on your first on your on your first your first album, you know, not the soundtrack. So did that success of the Eddie the Cruiser soundtrack affect your recording that album you had started working on? Because did you have to go out and tour now, or what happened? Uh, it uh, well, first of all, it it uh, the the movie soundtrack, especially the fact that it became as successful as it did. I mean, it opened so many doors for us. Um, you know, go, we got to tour all over the world really before you know that second record came out. Uh, which was Tough All Over, which was our first record, but the the one after the soundtrack. Um, I think having to give up what I felt like were two cornerstone songs from my our you know debut album, having to give up Tender Years and, and uh, Wild Summer Nights, it made me rethink what I what I was going to put on that that record, and it also the fact that I had had some success on the radio made me rethink uh, what I was writing, the, the the types of songs that I was writing. And I remember hearing an interview with John Lennon, who, who, you know, they were asking about what it felt like to be such a commercial band, you know, because for a while there in the 70s, it wasn't really that cool to have hits on, on AM radio and everybody had these, you know, big long songs, jam songs and stuff. And, um, and John Lennon just said, you know, he goes, I'm very, very proud of what we did, you know, with the Beatles. He said, you know, the the, the trick is um, to be able to say what you want to say without compromise, to be able to play what you want to play without compromise, but use your craft as a songwriter to be able to put it into a format that will get put on the radio so that people will hear the songs. He said, you know, who wants to write songs that no one's ever going to hear? So I thought about that, and I looked at uh, this pile of, uh, you know, 12-minute songs that I had, you know, from all our years of playing in the bars, and I said, uh, you know, maybe I should uh, try to figure out a way to, you know, make these songs a little more concise, or at least the new ones, and, you know, and, and put them in a, a, a way so that, uh, you know, I could say something, but uh, have it you know, be accepted by radio. So, you know, Tough All Over was a hit, top 20 hit, CITY was a hit off of uh, that uh, that album. Um, and another song that was uh, a hit in many, many places, but not nationally, called Small Town Girl. Um, so it was very successful in that, you know, in that I did get to write what I wanted to write. I had something to say. Um, and... Uh, they would hit songs. 
Now, their hit songs, the album does good. Then your next album comes out. Do you feel pressure? Because back then it seems like, you know, you had the soundtrack, and then you had this hit album, and then you have another. As a writer, do you start to sit there and go, I got to produce? Because, you know, Eddie Nacruz's soundtrack was great. We had this hit record. I got to come up with another hit. I mean, is it something that consumes you? Do you sit there and go at night? Because, you know, we all get those anxiety at night, you know, like, oh, man. Am I going to come up with something? I mean, how do you go from two hit records and then all of a sudden you have to write a third hit record? Is it very intimidating to you? Uh, no and yes. Um, the fact that we had um, two successful albums back-to-back that were basically uh, hit, the, you know, hit the airways like, uh, consecutively I mean we had had all that material all recorded um, so when Eddie and the Cruises hit we had already recorded Tough All Over um, so we went and toured two albums back to back which meant it was a lot of time on the road not a lot of downtime um, fun you know took us all over the world I mean it was it was incredible I mean it was uh it was uh, it was hard days night. It was the dream, you know. We, we were out doing it, and um, so writing new songs, you know, it was a little bit harder because um, just because of the time element of being on the road. So you know, they came a little slower, but um, I, I started. I got an idea to write like a song cycle. Which, which uh, meant that there's a loose thread that that runs through all these songs on the next album, which was called Roadhouse. That the the basic character in the first song on the record, which is called Bound for Glory, is really the same basic character in a, in, in a the ending song called uh, The Road I'm Running, and uh, it sort of loosely follows through. The, the songs of, of the whole album. There were quite a few hook-laden songs, songs that, that uh, you know, had radio potential. Um, the record company, uh, when they had the meetings to figure out what the, the singles were going to be, all picked different songs. So there's two ways to look at that. It's either there's... Uh, there's five songs that could be singles, or there's, there isn't one clear-cut hit song on the record. So um, that was the the option that they chose, and uh, you know, didn't get a whole lot of uh, didn't get a whole lot of uh, airplay or promotion that record. But is, you know, that's uh, you know, is that hard? Is that hard as that. an artist, though? I mean, you know, it's like is that? I mean, when you sit there and you know it's good. And it's not getting the airplay. I think I think we would take you back to when you didn't get signed. You're like, what the hell is going on? Now you're getting all this airplay, and then you're not getting it. Does it once again? Does it get you frustrated, or you just say, okay, the next one, writer? Uh, well, the, 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 um, there was no next one. Um, it was like uh, after Roadhouse. It was um, there was the. We were presented with the uh, with the opportunity to do Eddie and the Cruisers too, um, and I was, I I had just uh, uh, you know I 
I had just come through a situation where, like, if you know, I, I, I did the first one to get a record deal. I got a record deal. I had hits. I could prove that I could do it, uh, and the band could do it. Um, we were starting to make a name for ourselves, and now they wanted to put that, uh, you know, that uh, the the cloaking device on us once again, you know, like to put us, make us invisible again. And I, I, I just, I didn't want to do it. And it was basically, uh, well, you know, it, it, either you do it or you don't have a record deal. So, you know, reluctantly, I did it. Um, but once I committed to it, I committed to writing the best possible songs that I could for that record I wrote those songs for Eddie and the Cruisers too um um with me and my band in mind I didn't write them for a movie I wrote them for me and my band and you know if they used them in the movie that was great that was a, a use for them but I wrote those songs like they we were making our own album and uh consequently that that's there's a lot of really great songs on that record and, uh, you know, looking back at the, the whole body of work, I'm very, very proud of it all. Um, some songs got so more uh, of a spotlight than other songs, but it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't take away from the the quality of the songs in any way, shape or form. Um, doesn't take away from the work. It's uh, proud of it all. And, uh, you know, we, we go out on stage at night, and, you know, with no strings from movies or record companies or whatever. And I count the four and we create magic out of thin air. And in the end, that is the prize. That is the prize. The prize isn't the gold record on the wall. The prize is your ability to be able to go out there on a nightly basis to count the four, create magic, to lift up people's hearts, to lift your own heart in the process and and to continue another day doing something that you chose to do you know i mean that is the prize now you came out with the greatest hits album and i know there's some stuff from like you had a song on the cobra soundtrack which i know wasn't released on one of your albums what made you decide to come out with a a, a greatest hits album and it's remastered right so what is what is that like what what is remastering your hits what happened with that uh, well, I, I got a call from uh, a guy named Jeremy Holiday. Now, Jeremy he used to work for Sony for many, many years. Um, got a new job with a company called Iconic Classic um, and is now the president of Iconic Classic. Because he worked with Sony, um, he was very familiar with our catalog and our songs and our story. And... Um, he called me up and he, he said, uh, would you be interested in putting on a greatest hits record on a kind of classic records? He said, I think I can get the licensing from Sony because he, because he worked for Sony. Um, he knew how to untangle the, the spaghetti that, that, you know, the remnants of my career with the record company. And, uh, it, and I said, absolutely. I said, you know, Ed, coincidentally i've been writing new songs and we you know we've been playing them out and uh I, i'm thinking about making a new record after all these years and uh i think it would be a great uh you know reintroduction to um 
to our, our fans and friends to come out with the greatest hits and say, this, you know, we're still here. This is the, the best of ourselves and the best of what you remember us by. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, right after that, we'll have a greatest hits greatest record going into a new album. So, I mean, that's sort of like the, that's sort of the fantasy of it all. But uh, so far, the first part's working and we'll see what happens with the second part. Now, what do you pick? How do you pick what's going to be on what? Like, like, did you have to sit down with the record company? Because there's probably songs you love, and the record company goes, that ah, wasn't a hit. Like, how do you formulate a greatest hits? Because, you know, you can't put them all in. I mean, that'd be a box set. I mean, is there is there any ones that didn't make the, the cut that you wanted to? Like, did the record company say, did Jeremy say, nah, you know, we're going to put this one instead? I mean, how did you formulate it? How did you formulate? How did you decide what's going to go on there? Well, first of all, what a beautiful problem to have, you know. It's like I can't figure out, you know, what songs to put on a greatest hits because we have too many good songs. I mean, it's like that's, uh, you know, I'd take I'd take that problem every single day of the week. Um, it, we had input into it. Jeremy came up with a list of what he thought would would be great. Um, we came up with a list of what we thought was the best of ourselves. Um, and you have to remember that, 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 uh, Jeremy, he's a record company guy. He's also a music fan. Um, and he knows us through the records that we made. Um, we as a band know ourselves in a much different way. Um, we, you know, we see what these songs do in a live situation. A lot of them songs were written for a live situation and, the records that we made are only the tip of the iceberg of what it means to be in a band and how we relate to what we do. Um, so if you only know us from the record, you only see a very small part of, of the whole scope of, of, you know, our career, which is, you know, it's, it's riding the gigs. It's like, you know, playing till three o'clock in the morning. It's like, uh, you know, riding the bus, it's it's uh, working the bars, working, you know, the concert halls, the civic centers. I mean, it, all of the above, it's, it's such a big um, and, and very, you know, all-encompassing experience. Um, so in the end, I left it to Jeremy because what we were, you know, with our input, um but I gave him the final cut because I, I thought that uh, we are putting out a record. After all, we're not doing a live show. And uh, it's the greatest songs or the most popular songs that people know of us through the records. So, um, I, you know, and I think he did a great job of, of like, you know, picking out, you know, what was on, on the record. Were there songs that I wish were on it? Uh, yeah, but... <laughs> But I love what's on it. I thought he did a great job. Now, how did you end up in two Stallone movies? Did, did you ever meet Stallone? Did he ever call you and go, hey, oh, 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 John, I want you to... I mean, how did that happen? Because you had movies, you had songs... And call me the summer. What's that? You called me the summer. Stallone we, did? We, me and Gary were driving to a gig. We were doing a gig for the vets up in Boston. And uh, my phone rings... And I look at the phone and it says, uh, Sylvester Stallone. I said, you got to be kidding me. This can't be real, <laughs> right? 
And I answer the phone, I go, yeah, hey, Johnny, how you doing, right? And it's him, it's really him. So I said, hey, I, I said, hearts on fire. You know, I started singing Hearts on Fire from Rocky Four. He's like, yeah, yeah, he goes, he goes, that was so great. He goes, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, workout scenes in the, in the history of film. And he goes, your, your voice is right on top of it all. I said, man, I, I said, I had the easy part. I just sang a song. By the end of the song, you had to climb up a mountain and fight a Russian. <laughs> he goes, I did, I did. So, you know, he, his, his brother Frank was playing down in Atlantic City. And we were down in Atlantic City the same week. We played on a boardwalk, um, and he asked me if uh, if I if I'd be interested in, in opening up the show for Frank at the Hard Rock, you know, at on, on Atlantic City. I said absolutely. He said, yeah, we're gonna film the whole thing. It's gonna be great. And so you know, we all went out to dinner. And, you know, it was it was those guys are so fun. It was just the two of them, and uh, you know, and me and the band. And it was just uh, you know, we spent like three hours just sitting around. You know, have trading stories. Well, I read a review of your show in Atlantic City, and they said you just you still kick ass. And it's like, how important it is to you to give that good show? Because you know, you know, especially after COVID, you know, when when I I would go to a lot of concerts before COVID, and then I, I wouldn't go to them. And it's funny because I get along. Me and my wife have only been married for three years, and we have a great marriage. But she doesn't like concerts, so I go out with my buddy who you know. He was my concert buddy, you know, and then all of a sudden I have that. And, and, and when concerts came back, it was great. But what was it like when you went back? I mean, did you sit there and say these people, you know, they've been missing out on live music? I mean, you always deliver. But how much was it more special now that people were shut in for a while and missing your music? Well, uh, I mean, we're we're an old school band, you know, so I mean, we you know, from day one, you know, you know, we count to four, you know, we, we do it for real, you know, we, we go for it every time, you know, and, and, and truthfully, it's like, you know, why not, you know, what else are you doing it for? You know, if, if, if you don't believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing, like, why would you ask somebody else to do that? You know, so, um, so we go for it, you know, we put, we lay it on the line every time, you know, and, um, it, you know, but in this time after, you know, the, the shutdown, you know, when they, they lifted up the curtain, you know, um, I, I told the band when we were, you know, when we were, you know, sort of on the sidelines, you know, for a year and a half or so, I said, eventually they're going to open up the curtains. And when they do, we can either be rusty or we can be better than we ever were. You know, I know what I'm choosing. So we rehearsed and we wrote songs and we revived the songbook and got, you know, pulled out songs from the 70s that, that were never recorded. I mean, you know, so when we came out of COVID, I mean, you know, our show went from, uh, you know, to from an hour and a half to like three hours, you know, of like, you know, rock and roll insanity up there. So... Um, but if you pace it right, it's, it's uh, it, it can be, you know, just a really fun, fun night. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's what we do. You know I mean? If, if you have the ability to be able to go out there and to, you know, music is a giving thing. It's not a getting thing. I don't want anything from the crowd, you know, 
I go out there and the band goes out there and it's like, we got something to give. You know, I go out there and think that, you know, well, I got something that's going to be so fun, you know, and, uh, you know, let's just, uh, it, it takes the whole room to do it. You know, it takes everybody's participation. So let's just do it. Let's have a great night. You know, why not? You know, so uh, that's what we do. You know, and when you go out there with that attitude, uh, you get so much more in return. You know, you really do. And it really turns into a whole experience. I mean, the whole room is, is like, you know, singing and dancing and, you know, it's old bar band experience, you know. It's great. Now, where do you have to place on the dark side? Where do you put that on your set? Because Right up front. You, so you're open with that and then you, you know Always you got them. You got them right then and then you just... It's, it's never more than three songs deep into the set ever like from day one it's like this is what you came for boom here it is you know and and it, you make friends with the crowd right away you know they're very excited and uh you know and then you know and then then you got the rest of the night to just you know you you now you got a bunch of friends in the room you got the rest of the night to like you know to, explore all kinds of stuff, tell all kinds of stories to one another. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, they they tell the story to us just as much as we're telling it to them, you know, just by the way they they react to one another, the way they react to the music. Um, you know, you take your ego out. You let the music do what it's supposed to do. And, and uh, just like when I was a little kid and I was walking by my cousin's house and he was playing Dwayne Eddy's Rebel Rouser, you know, it stopped me in my tracks and it just made my foot tap. And I don't even know why to this day. It just does. You know, I, I, I don't have to know why. You know, it just does. It just is. I mean, I hear something and it, uh, you know, it just makes me feel better. And I know that I have the ability to do that with my band. I know that I have the ability to count to four and to create magic and to make people feel better, you know, and in return, make ourselves feel better as well. You know, to lift our hearts. I have one final question. It's a two-parter. The name Beaver Brown, I heard, if it's true, <laughs> from a paint can, but how did it go from just Beaver Brown? How did Beaver Brown, if that's true about the paint can, and then how did it end up them deciding it was John Cafferty and Beaver Brown Band. How did this happen? What? Where's Beaver Brown from? How'd you find? Well, it? Uh, Beaver Brown was, you know, when we we started the band, we rehearsed for like a year, you know, before we played anywhere. Got a job at the University of Rhode Island. They said, "What do we put on the poster?" And we like we looked at each other and went, "I don't know. We could think of a name." So we. Well, I got a case of beer and we just, you know, started drinking and thinking and looking around the room and, uh, you know, how about, uh, you know, the mic stands, the, the ashtrays, the, you know, the, the doorknobs, you know, I don't know. And somebody said Beaver Brown, I think it was Bobby. And he said, Beaver Brown, what? you know, this is the seventies where, you know, you could have goofy names like that, you know, Jethro Tull, you know? Um, so we, 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 we said, uh, and it was a paint can on the floor that we used to paint the inside of the rehearsal room in. And uh, so we said, yeah, you know, we'll change it next week. We'll just use that for this week. And so we went out and we played and, you know, bada bing, bada boom. We were like the most popular band in the neighborhood, like, you know, right away. So, um, 
we just you know we kept the name we got to the the record business portion of the career and and the record company you know i mean they're interested in uh, where the songs come from the voice the writer you know they want my name in front of the band it was it was at a time when uh, you know you know, just like in the 70s, it went from the Strawberry Alarm Clock and, you know, Jethro Tull and all those crazy names to, like, uh, it was Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, Bruce Springsteen, the East Street Band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Huey Lewis and the News, Southside Johnny and the Dukes. So it was a very common thing to, you know, put the the writer and lead voice out in front. Well, there you go. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. People, go to the website. It's at johncoffrey.com. Go buy the Greatest Hits album. You're going to like it. And, and you know, go buy the Eddie and your Cruiser soundtrack. You're going to like it. If you haven't heard it, and you're friends with me, I don't know why I'm friends with you if you've never even seen that movie. But so, please, <laughs> go follow. Go go to John Cafferty. When you see him in town, go see him. He puts on a hell of a show. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 935 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.